I invite you this morning that you would open your Bible with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And the theme of this epistle has been truly living a life of abundant joy. In chapter 1 of Philippians, he teaches us that we can cultivate a life of abundant joy by having a single mind where it's Christ first, Jesus first. In fact, Paul says this to the church of Philippi, to live is Christ and die is gain. Jesus first. This is how he teaches them to develop a life cultivating joy. And then in chapter 2, he speaks of the submissive mind. The submissive mind is the mind of Christ that in humility you esteem others better than yourself. That you do not let circumstances or people rob you of your joy. Both circumstances can rob you of your joy People can rob you of your joy. So we need the single mind to live as Christ, die as gain. The submissive mind, the mind of Christ that walks in humility. But then in chapter 3 of the book of Philippians, he speaks of the spiritual mind. Would you note that this morning? The spiritual mind. That is the mind that we are going to study through the entire chapter of chapter 3. And he gives this very important encouragement in the 20th verse of this chapter where he says, our citizenship is in heaven. In order to cultivate joy in your life, you have to remind yourself every day that you are a citizen of heaven. That you would not be attached, that you would not identify, that you would not be so proud with your earthly nationality, but that you would know that if you gave your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you belong to a better citizenship. It's the citizenship of heaven. In fact, after speaking to us about circumstances or people that rob us of joy, in chapter 3, he says, things can rob us of joy. Think about how oftentimes you're disappointed because you did not receive that thing that you wanted or that you have not obtained what you think you deserve, whether it's earthly or temporal. So he says, have a spiritual mind so that what you do have or what you don't receive, it doesn't affect your joy because your mind is spiritual thinking of heavenly things. If you think of heavenly things, you will be less disappointed when things change here on earth because your mind is fixed in heaven. And it's so easy today to be caught up in the things of this world in a job, in success, in money, in what you are going to attain, maybe security, right? Assurance. But here he speaks of that we should look at earth in every event of life, no matter what season you are, from heaven's point of view. So whether you are beginning your Christian walk in Jesus Christ, whether you have been walking with Christ for a long time and you find yourself in a trial, in a tribulation, in a test, waiting that you would look at every situation from heaven's point of view so that you can cultivate joy, understanding that we live a life very temporary here on earth. Now, not only does he explain that to us, but he also tells us how can we be right with God? If we're citizens of heaven, you have to know how you can be right with God. How do you become saved? How does one become saved? There's so many people that go to church, have been coming to church their entire lives, or maybe even years, and they don't know how one must become saved. Just imagine somebody goes up to you at the store, or a coworker, or a friend, a relative, and says, hey, I want to know how I can be saved. Would you know how to answer that? Many people don't. Well, they say, you know what, just come to church, or belong to this organization, or knock on a thousand doors every Saturday morning, and you'll be saved. No, none of those things save you. Jesus saves. And that's exactly what he's teaching us, our salvation and the reason that we can rejoice in it. If you're a citizen of heaven, notice you can rejoice today in your salvation. And he explains these three doctrines in chapter 3. In verse 9, you find it the first time, verse 9, where he says this, being found in Him. Circle that in your Bible. Found in Him. You know what he mentions here? Justification. You're in Christ. 
Justification means that you are right with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that God has declared you innocent and right with God only on the basis of the cross of Jesus Christ and His finished work paying for the penalty of our sins. That's the first aspect of your salvation, your justification. And then in verse 10, he speaks of your sanctification. Notice how he says it this in verse 10, that I may know him. That I may know him. What does that mean? That I may be transformed more into the image of Christ. That I may grow more in holiness, more in his likeness. That's what sanctification means. Set apart for Christ, for Christ's likeness. And then in verse 21 of chapter 3, he speaks of being transformed or conformed into his glorious body. This is the third aspect of your salvation today, which is glorification. That's when we go to heaven, we receive our new heavenly bodies. The three aspects of your salvation are mentioned in one chapter here of Philippians. Justified, sanctified, glorified. What is justification? What we're going to talk about this morning is the act of God declaring you innocent, right with God, because of the cross. And he now mentions two groups in chapter 3, each with three different descriptions, these two groups. Those that are religious and those that are truly righteous. Now, I want you to know that because this morning, we do not want to confuse religious and righteous. Religious is an outward performance of you trying to reach up to God by your good works to be right with Him. Righteousness is something that we obtain as a gift because we're walking in God's grace after we've trusted Him and put our faith in Him. And it's so easy oftentimes to fall into religion. You come to church, you leave church, you sing the songs, you raise your hands, you may even profess with your lips, but what about your heart? So in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we're going to look at three verses, but let's stand this morning for the reading of God's Word, and we'll read this morning from verses 1 to verse 9 to get a context of what Paul is sharing with us. He says this, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for your grace. Today we can walk in grace. We run to grace, Lord. Thank you for mercy that we can find help in time of need. And we ask, Lord, that you would... Let us grow in the grace and in the knowledge of who you are, Jesus. Thank you for this beautiful epistle here that it's teaching us, Lord, how to cultivate a life of abundant joy in Christ. So Lord, speak to us from the inside out in Jesus' name. Together we said, amen. You may be seated. If you like taking notes, the title of the message this morning is True Spirituality. True Spirituality. There is something such as a false spirituality, and we're going to see that today. But we, as we follow Christ, as we're seeking His Word, we want to 
know what is true spirituality. And only three verses that we look at this morning, we're going to see, number one, joy that is guarded. He tells us to guard our joy. But he also tells us so that we can avoid legalism. Legalism to be avoided. And then number three, to identify or have an identity comprehension. That we would I know where our identity is in now. It's in Christ. It's not in ourselves and it's not in the flesh. And he begins here in verse 1 of chapter 3 where he says to guard your joy. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, he doesn't say finally to finish, but to indicate a transition here or a new section that he's going to now speak on. Now, Paul here is the first pastor or preacher to ever do this. Have you ever seen a preacher or pastor say, you know what, finally, or for my last point, or I'm going to end here, and then they continue 15 minutes? Well, they learned it from Paul. He did the same thing. (laughs) He says, finally, and then he has two entire chapters left. But here he's telling us that he's going into a new section. He says, furthermore, I need to teach you regarding this. And he says, rejoice in the Lord. Now circle the word in because that's where our joy for the Christian is found. In Christ Jesus. In the Lord. This is an exhortation. This is an encouragement to you wherever you would find yourself in your walk right now that you should rejoice in the Lord. In fact, what he's saying is go on constantly rejoicing. Or what he's saying is be continuously rejoicing, not presently, not only in this present moment, but that you would continuously be rejoicing. Go on. And as we read the first two chapters of Philippians, we know that joy has very little to do with what's going on around you and has more to do with what's happening inside of you. That is true joy here. And he's giving us a reason as to why we can rejoice. We can rejoice because you are in, notice that word in, a relationship with Jesus. This is where our joy is found, that we are in a relationship with Jesus. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of being connected to Jesus, is what? Love. And then it's joy. And this is exactly what he's teaching us here, that the joy is in the Lord. That is the sphere in which our joy exists. It's not in circumstances. Our joy is not in situations. Our joy is not in people, in promises, things, seasons. Our joy is in an unchanging relationship with the Lord who is in control. Seasons may change. Circumstances may change. People may not keep their word, but Jesus never changes. He's always the same. He's unchanging. So our joy is in an unchanging relationship with Jesus. In fact, when you think about joy as a Christian, notice this. Think about joy as being a spiritual reality check. You want to check your spirituality today? Ask yourself, how are you doing in terms of love? And then how are you doing in terms of joy? Because if you're truly spiritual, notice, you will display love and you will be walking in joy. You will know that no matter what happens in your life, no matter how circumstances change, you realize you can have joy because, number one, God is on the throne. You can have joy because you are a child of God. Think about that. It may become very difficult, but your joy is in that God is in control, that you are a child of God, and number three, that he works all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And when your joy is in the Lord, I'll tell you this right now, you will not be easily disappointed. When your eyes are on this world, when your eyes are on things, you're going to be disappointed because things change, because circumstances change, because life is always changing. And when your joy is in the Lord, you will not be disappointed. You're not going to complain about where you're at. You're not going to murmur about it. You're not going to gripe when God changes the plans. Because they're not your plans. They're God's plans. And his plans are better than yours. His ways are better than your ways. 
You know what, what it truly shows when you can have joy in spite of situations? What it truly says is that you trust God who is in control. Things may change. They may not go your way. You may be being tested right now in your walk. But you can have joy and it demonstrates that you truly are trusting in the Lord and walking by faith. This is where our joy is. It comes from the good news of forgiveness, of eternal life. That is the heart of the New Testament, that we have a relationship with Jesus. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is where our joy is found, in the teaching of the core essence of the gospel, that Jesus has come to seek, to save that which is lost. You find it recorded in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's spread through the book of Acts. It's expounded through the epistles. It's consummated in the book of Revelation, that we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And notice verse 1, what does he say? His love and his concern. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious. Now, notice what he's saying. I'm going to say it again. And I'm not tired of saying it. I'm not tired of saying it again. I'm going to write to you the same things. In fact, I'm not tired of telling you this because you need to hear it. Sometimes we think, well, you know what? I've heard that before, that message. Or I can't believe they keep repeating themselves. Oh, I don't want to hear that message. I'm past that message. No, I'm going to repeat myself because you need to hear this. And today we need to hear this. He's telling them, this is something I've already told you. In fact, in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 27 to 30, he says the same thing, that you would walk a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, I must repeat these things. Repetition is the best teacher. It's the best teacher. In fact, a good instructor repeats himself. Let me say that again. A good instructor, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Repetition, he loves them. He's concerned. He wants them to grow. This is the very same thing that Peter did when he spoke to the Jewish believers that were being persecuted. In 2 Peter 1, verse 12, it says this, For this reason, I will not be negligent. I'm not going to neglect you. I'm not going to neglect my responsibility as your shepherd, he says. Always reminding you of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth, you may already know them and you're established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this tent, as long as I'm alive, to stir you up. How does he stir them? By reminding you. Do you see why we need to be reminded today? So that you don't forget and that you don't walk away from the grace in which you started. So that today you don't forget. In fact, he says, it is for your safe. Look at verse 1. It says, but for you, it is safe. It is to protect you of false teachers. He knew that they were exposed to false doctrine. He's reminding them so that they would have in their hearts and in their minds, embedded and written sound doctrine. Especially today, when there's so much teaching and false doctrine online, everywhere you go, it is important, it is for your sake that you are reminded of this. That you would be confident and assured of your salvation. He's saying, I'm doing this to safeguard, to protect your faith so that you understand that your salvation is real, that you know why you are saved and how you are saved. Isaiah 29, verse 13. Notice what the Lord speaks about the nation of Israel. He says, Inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. You can say it with your lips and your mouth, proclaim it, raise your hands, sing it, but is your heart truly following Christ. And their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. Instead of following me from the heart, notice, they're just doing the rituals of men. 
They're going through the motions, but their heart isn't truly surrendered to me. The warning here today is that you would not be going through the motions. The warning today is that you would not leave the same way that you came. That you understand that a transformation is truly needed in your life, that it would be from the heart. That you would not be going through rituals because anything that's not done in spirit and in truth is just religion. So he's speaking regarding this, that you would not have a false assurance of your salvation. What did the church of Sardis believe in Revelation chapter 3? The angel of the Lord speaks to them and says, I know you have a name and you think you're alive, but you're actually dead. You're just going through the works. You're just going through the motions. So be careful of these false teachers that have come into the church here in Philippi that are teaching that you have to become Jewish to be a Christian. You know what they're called? Judaizers. They were legalists. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, when Peter went up on the rooftop, he was praying, he had a vision to go and speak to Cornelius. And Cornelius said, I'm sent for Peter. God had spoken to Peter saying, do not call anything uncommon, which I have made clean. Speaking of the Gentiles, Peter goes to speak at Cornelius' house. Him and his friends and family get saved baptized, and then the Jewish leaders call Peter in and says, we heard that you went and you ate with uncircumcised men. Why would you do that? Why would you do, go and share and speak and spend time with those that are not practicing the Jewish law? And he says, you know what? The Holy Spirit fell upon them. Who was I to withstand God? Just because they don't look like you? Just because they don't sound like you? You know what that is? That's pride in your heart. You know, pride is the last recognized sin in the heart of the believer. So beware of it. And here you see that he's giving this warning that you would keep the main thing, the main thing. You know what it is? The cross of Jesus Christ. That's the main thing. The grace of God. So I'm saying this, number one, so that you can guard your joy. Joy must be guarded. But then notice verse 2 legalism must be avoided. Be very careful that you don't enter into a works-based relationship where it's legalistic. And then the problem about legalism and self-righteousness is that it's very hard to detect because pride blinds you. And you begin to think that you're right with God because of how good you are or because of your goodness instead of because of God's grace. And you know what happens? You stop being loving. You no longer are filled with joy. You begin to treat people bad because you base your faith off of your works instead of the cross of Jesus Christ. The people whose eyes are always on the cross, you know what they are? Forgiving, loving, filled with joy, compassionate, merciful, filled with grace. A triple warning is found in verse 2. Notice it. Against a false righteousness. And notice what he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of mutilation. Now, when he says, watch out for those dogs, he's not talking about, with this illustration, of a cute little puppy that you would maybe train, right? And as we today, invite him in your home. <laughs> no, when he says dogs, he's, this is a term that the Jewish people would use in contempt or hatred against the Gentile believers. They would call them dogs because they were unclean. Now, Paul is using that very same term against the Jewish legalists who are putting this false righteousness on people, saying they had to become Jews to be saved. And the dogs of that day, they were filthy animals. In fact, they roamed the street. They were wild scavengers, dirty, foul. So he's using this illustration of a wild scavenger as a way to now describe the sinful and uncontrolled character of here, these Judaizers, these troublemaking legalists who attempted to deceive people with morality. Look how good I am. Or an impure mind spreading destructive doctrines in the church. 
this man-made purity. It's false, a man-made purity. The only purity that exists is when you're washed by the blood of the Lamb. That is the true purity. He said they're dogs because although they think they're moral, they're actually unclean. They're like wild scavengers that are dirty, unclean. Beware of them. They're unclean. They're dogs. But also he says, number two, beware of evil workers. Look at, as you notice there in verse two. And the word evil means depraved. They're bad. They taught that a sinner was saved by faith, notice, plus works. That's a false doctrine. We're not saved by faith plus works. We're saved by faith in God's grace. And here he's telling them, this is now those that are teaching people that they need a meeting requirement of a checklist that is man-made in order to be saved or be a Christian. In fact, they prided themselves in being workers of righteousness. That's why he calls them evil workers, because any attempt, notice this, to try to please God outside of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, any attempt of trying to please God outside of that, outside of redemption, is the worst kind of wickedness. It's a sin. And he's saying these are people who do evil. They emphasize righteousness, uprightness, right with God through works. Know this, and you already do, but we're reminding you today that our good works are a result of your faith. Our good works are a result of our faith. They're not the basis of your salvation. Don't think that you're saved because you come to church every Sunday or because you serve in ministry. Or you say, you know what, I think I'm really saved. I serve in the children's ministry. I must be saved. No, the basis of our salvation is our faith. When our good works become the basis of our salvation, then they have become evil works. Then they have become bad works because we're treating them as substitutes of the grace of God. The good news of Jesus Christ is that salvation is by grace alone. What is it? It's a gift. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you more or that you would earn your salvation. It's a gift. It's through faith alone. It's not by works. It's not by performance. Don't think this. I'm saved because of my performance. You're not saved because of your performance. You're saved because of the grace of God. So when you sin, you ask for forgiveness. God covers you with his grace. He forgives you because of his blood. And you remain in fellowship with him. It's not by works. It's in Christ alone, not by any other means or any other person than the person of Jesus Christ. What does Ephesians chapter 2 tell us? For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that you can't brag about your righteousness. So that you can't think, well, look how spiritual I am. Well, God must love me. I'm a gift to the church. It's not because of your good works. Where he says rejoice in the Lord, you know what he says? We are to rejoice in everything that God has done for us. Not in any type of human means to gain favor with God. Don't try to gain favor with God because of who you are or your position or your experience. None of those things gain you favor. None of those things help you. You know what helps you? Running to the grace and mercy of God to find help and mercy in time of need. That's the only thing that helps. So beware of dogs. Beware of here evil workers, those that are speaking of a works-based relationship. And specifically here in verse 2, beware of mutilation. Now here, Paul becomes so direct And he doesn't treat circumcision as something with respect, honor, or as if it were spiritually an inward posture. He says this is just an outward act. And he calls circumcision mutilation, cutting off. Beware of those who say you need to be circumcised to be saved. Beware of those that say that you have to be set apart by circumcision. That was a form, a mark, a sign of identification 
in the Old Testament as a covenant promise between Abraham and God. But now we are sealed, we're set apart by the Holy Spirit because we have been forgiven. So he says, beware of those who say you need to be circumcised to be saved. In fact, he didn't think of this as something being honorable, something that is now noble, but he regarded it as something that was ugly. (laughs) The circumcision that you're trusting in, the cutting off of the exterior flesh of the male. He's saying this is mutilation like the pagans who mutilated their bodies. It's meaningless. It's mean, It's filled with legalism. Now, notice what an illustration we receive here because this is exactly what legalism does. Legalism attempts to mutilate the grace of God. That's what it does. It, it, it attempts to cut off or cut yourself off from God's grace. Beware of mutilation. It does not save you. No outside sign or mark saves you. You know what saves you? Jesus saves. That's what saves you. Jesus saves. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says that the Jews came in teaching that. Luke records it this way. And certain men coming down from Judea taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Unless you look a certain way, unless you circumcise, you can't be saved. You're unclean. These are man-made rules. These are burdens that people oftentimes lay on others that are not even from God. True circumcision, the cutting off of the flesh, the true circumcision that God cares about today is the one that happens in the heart. That's the circumcision where you cut away the flesh in the heart inwardly and spiritually. You cut off the flesh in the heart. The flesh, the old man, the old desires, the old passions in the heart, you cut that away. I don't want to be a part of that anymore. I don't want to belong to that. Those temptations, you're cutting the flesh away. In Colossians 2.11, it says this, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You know what the circumcision that took place when you gave your life to Jesus Christ? is that you cut away the old man. That's the circumcision that truly matters, that you have died to the flesh. In Romans chapter 2, verse 28, Paul tells the church of Rome this, for he's not a Jew or one who identifies with God, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly. You want to identify yourself as God's person? You know where it matters? In the heart. Not outside, in the heart. And circumcision that is in the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. You know what man looks at? The outward appearance. How does someone look like? Or someone has to look a certain way to be a Christian. That's not, none of those things matter. God is looking at the heart of a person. And he's seeing truly if they cut away the flesh in their heart. Where he says, beware of mutilation, he says, beware of any outward sign that tries to serve as a substitute so that you can become right with God, that you would not trust in that. There are two types of religions in this world that that all religions of the world are divided in this. The first one is the religion of human achievement, which says, you know what, if I knock on a hundred doors every Saturday morning, I must be saved. Or if I do these good works, if I pray these prayers, If I serve this way, that's human achievement based on your good works. But there's also that which is of divine accomplishment. It's not you reaching up to God. It's that God reached down to man and he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sins. It's a relationship. It's not a ritual. So he says, beware of just going through the motions. That you would not go through rituals. Beware of legalism. And then finally, notice what he says, that identity must be comprehended. Joy guarded, legalism avoided, identity comprehended. Verse 3, look at this. For we are the circumcision. We are truly those that are set apart for God. 
He uses that word to describe who truly are God's people. These are those who truly are God's people. It's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of the flesh. And he gives three distinctives. Look at the three distinctives in verse 3. Of those who are truly Christian, those who are truly believers, those who are truly following Christ, it's not those that are putting their confidence in the flesh, but notice, number one, who worship God in the Spirit, number two, who rejoice in Christ, and number three, who put no confidence in the flesh. That is the definition of one who's truly walking with God. It's a matter of the heart. Now notice, as he says and describes those who worship God in the Spirit, it says, not those who who consider themselves to be right with God through the works of the flesh. Not those who need a symbol, not those who need an outward mark to have a clean heart. Circumcision only described a mark that you're set apart. It says, but those who have been cleansed of sin by God in the heart. You want to know if you're truly saved? Have you been cleansed by sin by the Lord in the heart? Not through legalism, not through fleshly attempts, not through external worship. But are you truly walking with Jesus? Are you worshiping him? You know, worship means that you offer him your service. You render it to him. You're saying, Lord, I'm worshiping you. I'm praising you from the inside out. It's not from the lips. It's from my heart, Lord. Worship begins in the heart. The heart of worship truly is that. That is the heart of worship, that it begins in the heart. It's not about a ritual. It's not about a place. It's not about a mark. You know what it is? It's about the heart. Not outwardly, but inwardly. It's not going through the motion. It's real. Do you remember in John chapter 4 where Jesus passes through Samaria? And he meets this woman, a divine appointment at the well. And after he tells her that he's the Messiah, that, you know, if you would have known who I am, I would, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you the gift of God. You'll never thirst again. He says, since you're a prophet, tell us where must we worship? Our fathers say we must worship on this mountain. Yours say, you being Jew, say you must worship in Jerusalem. Jesus says, none of those things even matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter where you worship. True worship is worship in the heart, in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter about what you call yourself. You call yourself whatever you want. There's so many times that Christians are divided by what they name themselves. It is is so strange. (laughs) We're Christians. We're followers of Jesus. When we get to heaven, Jesus is not going to say, Calvary Chapel, why don't you guys meet me in this side over here? Everyone that went to Calvary Chapel, you know? Let me get my Baptist believers in this side of heaven. It doesn't matter. We're all in Christ Jesus. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's the only thing that matters. Jesus saves. And it happens in the heart. In fact, John chapter 4, verse 23, it says, but the hour is coming and now is. This is the hour now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, in the heart, in sincerity, in the spirit means you've been born again, and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Anything. Pay close attention to this, please. That is not done in spirit or in truth of Scripture is simply religious. You can be impressed by it. You can be wowed. You can be enamored. But if it's not done in the spirit, if it's done in the flesh, if it's not done in the truth of Scripture, you know what? It's just religious. And God is not there. God's not there. I heard a story of a little boy that went and attended church with his father on a Sunday morning. And after going to bed that night, he knelt at his bedside and he prayed. He said, dear God, we had a good time at church today, but I wish you would have been there. But I wish you would have been. Think about that. Going through acts, going through motions, going through works, but God's not there. You know what God is in? In spirit, and God is in truth. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, these people, notice, they draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips, 
but their heart is far from me. In vain, in vanity, they worship me, teaching as doctrines and commandments of men. They're all men followers. They're people followers. They're doing it as a show, as a performance. Doing all of these things from the outside with their lips, with their mouth, with the robes, how they look, and it's just fake. Their hearts are not far from me. It's all outward, but it's not inward. Those who are truly in Christ worship in spirit and in truth. Number two, they rejoice in Christ. Look at verse three. Our joy is in Jesus. It's not in human works. Rejoice here. When, when he speaks of this in verse three, this word rejoice, he's speaking to boast with joy. To boast with joy, giving all the credit to God for who we are. Giving all the credit to God for who we are in Christ Jesus. We boast, we rejoice in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because without Christ, notice this, we're nothing. So those who are truly Christ rejoice in Christ. Joy is not found in your own ability to be justified, to be right with God. Our joy is only found in Jesus Christ. You know what the legalist does? He has no joy. He's always frustrated. He's always tired. Always out of breath, trying and striving to be right with God. That's what the legalist does. He thinks he's right with God, but have you seen their face? Serious, no joy. Miserable, legalist. Going around trying to find out who's wrong, who did, who sinned. The police. But notice, one who walks in grace, what do they do? They walk in God's grace. They magnify the work of Christ on the cross. A legalist will minimize the cross and maximize their own human efforts. But those that are walking in grace, they, they minimize their human efforts. And they maximize the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Why? Because apart from Jesus, we have no real salvation. In Romans 15, 17, it says, therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus. Where do you rejoice in Christ Jesus? In 1 Corinthians 1.31, Paul says, he who glories, let him glory in, in God. You're rejoicing in God. In Galatians 6, 14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If there's anything to brag about, anything to rejoice about, you know what it is? In the cross of Jesus Christ. This is he who is truly saved. And then finally, number three, and we have no confidence in the flesh. Have no confidence in the flesh. You know, the number one person that you should not trust, ever trust this person, and don't look at your spouse right now. I'm not talking about them. The person that you should never trust is yourself. Because the flesh is weak. And you know what? You know the Bible has nothing good to say about the flesh? Nothing good does the Bible have to say about the flesh. It's, it's the old man. It's sinful. Those who are truly walking in Christ Jesus, notice, we put no confidence in the flesh. We do not trust in our own ability to be righteous before God through external works. Do not trust the flesh but our confidence is in Jesus. Ask yourself today, where's your confidence? What makes you feel good about you walking with Christ? The grace of Jesus. Not that you're at church, not that you're serving in ministry, not that you may even work at a church. Doesn't matter. Doesn't save you. Not your experience, not your position, not who you know. None of those things make you right with God. Those are all earthly and temporal things. Do not put your confidence as a man of God, as a woman of God, in the things of this flesh. We are to completely depend on the Lord, not on human efforts. You know what the flesh stands for? Self. You know what the self stands for? Pride. You know what pride is? Sin. You know what sin leads to? Death. We are to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. The flesh brings forth fruit to death. And the Jewish legalists, what they did is they placed their confidence being circumcised, being descendants of Abraham. What about this? Tradition. <laughs> oh, my confidence is in my tradition. Your tradition is not going to save you. 
performing external ceremonies, duties, the Mosaic law, these things could not save them. Did you know that the Ten Commandments were never supposed to save us? They were there just to expose our sin. All of us are guilty of the Ten Commandments every single day. <laughs> they were there to expose us of our sin. And then Christ came to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In Christ Jesus, we have forgiveness. So be careful that you don't go from being spiritual to being carnal. That's what happened to the church in Galatia. What did Paul tell that church? He says, what happened? Are you so foolish? You began in the spirit. Now it's all the work of the flesh. You used to depend on the Lord. Now you know what you want to do? It's all the fingerprints of man. It's all the work of man. It's not even the work of Christ anymore. It's all you trying to be good. It's all a work of the flesh, a, a forcing, a striving, a battling. Instead of saying, Lord, a work of the Spirit gives life. A work of the Spirit is done on its own. The flesh profits nothing. Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The true believer sees the flesh as something that is sinful with no capacity even at its best, to save you or to please God. What did Jesus say? I'm the vine, you're the branches, he who abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. <laughs> do not put your confidence in your flesh, in your own goodness. The Bible says no one is good, no, not one. People, you know what religion tells you? Well, you know, I'm a pretty good person, I'm gonna go to heaven. But the Bible says that our good works are as what? Dirty rags. It's not about the outward, it's about the inward. It's about the inward. And when you trust in your good works, you know what's going to happen? You soon will become prideful. Because you're trusting in something else. Look how much I'm doing. I'm in ministry. You start to think, well, look, I'm better than they are. Look how I look. I, I don't look like them. And you start to measure yourself by a false standard. Be careful, don't do that. Don't measure yourself by a false standard. You know what the true standard to measure yourself is? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And the only way to attain that standard is by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to be more Christ-like every single day. Because when you become self-righteous, you know what happens? You're arrogant. And you start to despise other people because they don't look like you, because they don't talk like you, because you think you're so spiritual, but you're not. People don't need to look like you to be spiritual. You know what they need to look like? Jesus to be spiritual. In fact, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 18 as we come to a close here in regards to learning how we must approach God. This is how we must approach God. Instead of trying to correct everyone or thinking that we're right with God because of how our lives look, we need to have a humble attitude and approach God the right way. Sometimes we look at the world or those that are struggling in their faith or those that don't look like us. Oh, look, they're so sinful. They're not like us. They're wrong and we're right. Shame on us. That's called self-righteousness. That's called arrogance. Jesus saw that this was happening and notice the parable that he gave here because in Luke chapter 18, verse nine, he says, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That's so key. They trusted in themselves. Look it, I think I'm good. At least I'm not like them that they were righteous and despised others. What happens when you trust in yourself and you become arrogant? You start to despise other people. And it makes you feel good or it makes you feel holy when other people sin or calling them out because you, you think that you're spiritual or you're the standard. No one made you the standard. Notice this. It is not your responsibility to expose other people's sin. You're not the Holy Spirit. And it says, look, he told this parable to those that were, thought they were righteous, despised others, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I love this parable. Two people went to church. And it's not about how you come to church, it's about how you leave that matters most. 
It's not about where you came from. It's about where you're going. And it says this, notice, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Notice, God doesn't even listen to this prayer because he prayed it to himself. He's not even praying to God. He's praying just to hear himself pray now. <laughs> That's what the self-righteous does. Look, I want to hear myself pray. I pray so nice. And notice how many times he uses the word I. That's so, that's prideful. I. The word I. I know. I'm it. Notice what he says. Thus he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even at this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes and all that I possess. And the tax collector, notice his approach. Standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. What did the tax collector do? He recognized that he was a sinner, number one. And number two, he recognized that he needed a savior. God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. You know what Jesus says about these two men? I tell you, this man went down, verse 14, to his house justified. You know who's the one that went home right with God? This man, the one that says, God, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. Not the one that thought he was already righteous. Rather than the other, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, what happens? They're going to be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know what I want to tell you this morning? Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be going through the outside works because it doesn't matter about the outside. He said, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Just because you come to church doesn't mean you're right with God. I mean, there's some people here who are not right with God right now that need to repent, that need to make things right with God. And you know, you simply how you do it by saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner and run into his arms. In Romans 5, it says that God demonstrated his love towards us, that even while we were sinners, he died for us. He demonstrated his love for us so that we can live a life of abundant joy. He says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give life and to give it abundantly. And now as we fix our eyes on the cross, you know what you can say? Jesus, yes, I'm a sinner, but Jesus paid it all and all to him I own. Sin, yes, it left a crimson stain, but he washed it all white as snow. Amen. Let's pray.